three seasons in a man's life. Deer season, football season, and Christmas season. (laughs) I thought about it, and each of these seasons has one commonality. They have one thing in common, and it's surprise. That's right, surprise. Have you ever been hunting and you hadn't seen anything? Then you look to one side for a while, and suddenly you look back right straight in front of you, and there's a deer. And where did it come from? I mean, that's a surprise, a big surprise. And uh, and football season involves surprises too. Some good, some not so good. Uh, No matter what, each week it seems that some team that nobody thought would lose does lose. And some team that nobody thought would win does win. Um, And Christmas, you see all those packages under the tree, and it's fun to see the surprise on the faces of the family as they open those gifts, and the surprises are revealed. And so I hope that you, you got to share in some joyous surprises under the tree this year. But today, I wanted to talk about a scripture that involves at least four surprises in just 12 verses, and it's Matthew 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And it's when Jesus heals a paralytic. It says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down on the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Well, here are the four surprises that we see. The assembled crowd is surprised by something. The seekers of the healing are surprised by something. The religious leaders are surprised by something. And the readers of the text are surprised by something. Let's save the surprise to the religious leaders for the last. So let's do it in this order. The surprise to the assembled crowd. The surprise to the seekers of the healing. The surprise to the readers of the text. And finally, the surprise to the religious leaders. So first, let's look at what would surprise the assembled crowd. Jesus is speaking in a home. The place is packed. No room for anyone else. 
I imagine people cramped in the doorways and listening at the windows. And here came four men. So determined were they to get their friend to Jesus that the crowded entries did not deter them. They headed to the roof with their friend. Now imagine what this must have been like on the inside of the house. This was not Jerry World where the Dallas Cowboys play in Arlington. There was no retractable roof, but the roof starts to open nonetheless. Imagine, Jesus is speaking and this hole starts opening up. Don't you know that this completely interrupted the flow of his talk? I mean, when you're speaking, you want to grab the audience's attention and hold it through, and interruptions take that away. One time, my family and I went to a classical music concert held at a a rustic concert hall near Rocky Mountain National Park, so the setting was gorgeous. Students go there as campers during the summer, and these students are accomplished musicians who get to learn from the greats. And from time to time, the teachers or the students themselves give concerts to the public. They have them at the camp in a performance hall. All the windows and the doors um, are open to the camp outside because the daytime temperatures in Colorado during the summer are just about perfect. Well, at the concert we attended, a chipmunk made its way into the concert hall. He then scurried around the floor at the musician's feet Now, the musicians did not realize this, but everyone in the audience saw. So you can imagine that no one was listening to the music, but instead were ooing and aahing as the poor creature dodged between legs and and around tapping toes and through the feet of music stands. It was quite a show, but not the one we expected to see when we got our tickets. In the same way, the people assembled before Jesus on this occasion got quite a show, just not the one they had expected when they assembled. What they got was a surprise. That surprise leads us to the second surprise, the surprise to the seekers of the healing. They lower the man down, and everyone's attention is fixed on this man. And instead of Jesus saying what you would think he would say, which is, get up, take up your mat, and walk, He goes over to the man and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now I have to imagine that the man and his friends had to be surprised at this statement of Jesus. They had to be thinking, "Um, We opened up the roof, we calculated exactly where in the house that you were, and we opened the roof right there, impressing every engineer assembled in the crowd that day, and safely lowered him down right in front of Jesus. I mean, isn't it obvious why we did this? Don't you think that the friends and the, uh, uh, and the man would be saying something like, uh-huh, great, that's nice, forgiveness is a wonderful spiritual experience, but anyone with eyes in his head would be able to see that I've got something a little bit more pressing right now? But the point of the text and the point of Jesus here is to say no you don't. No, you don't. You think that because you are paralyzed, that if you could walk, everything would be like a bed of roses. You'd have no problems from now on. But I could tell you, 
in about three weeks, you'd be unhappy about something else. When we ate um, at Thanksgiving, many of my family got up from the table and said, I'm never going to eat again. Well, guess what they were doing in just a few hours? That's right, eating. What Jesus is actually saying here is incredibly important. You see, Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. No material possession, no healing, no granting of three wishes, nothing is more important than having a right relationship with God. That's the most important, the most crucial thing. Today, there's a big split in the church. Do we meet people's physical needs or do we spend our efforts meeting their spiritual needs? Which of these two should we spend our time on, our resources on? I thought that because you're getting a substitute preacher today, I'd get a real preacher, one who can really make a point, help us uh, to make that choice as to which to focus on. He is John Piper. Here he is. At uh, Lausanne over a year ago in South Africa, this big global conference where Christians from every country of the world were present, And I pleaded with them that they would all agree with this sentence. And I'm going to plead with you now. Let's, and I'm addressing the issue of social, physical caring for people and spiritual caring for people. There's a big conflict. You know, some people want to give their lives away for human trafficking and clean water and good education and let's have food on the table, let's put food in people's bellies, let's help them. They can't even survive without help. And then there's others who say they're going to go to hell. They need the gospel. And I'm just pleading with you, don't separate those. They're both absolutely true. You're not called to choose between those. When I say God made you to love people, I'm not asking you to choose. So here's the sentence. I said, Christians, Bible-believing people, care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. That's it. And that's what I'd like you to feel. I would like you to look on any pain in your friend's life with compassion. A sore throat, or the loss of their mom, or the announcement of a doctor that they've got cancer. Whatever it is, I want you to be the kind of person from Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan who can't walk by on the other side. You can't. You're just wired. I can't walk by and leave this person alone. They have a need. I have some resources. So, yes, but I want your heart to be whole and real and inclusive of all that God is and all that He teaches. And that means there's a heaven and there's a hell and everybody's bound one way or the other. And if you try to fill a person's belly and don't care about where they're going, you don't love them I don't care what you feel in your heart or how many needs on this planet you have laid down your life to meet. If you're not aiming, aiming, I'm not saying you succeed. 
And I'm not saying filling their bellies is contingent upon them getting saved. No. I'm saying if you don't care, if, you're not, if your heart's not moving toward their salvation and their eternal joy in God where they glorify Him forever, you don't love them. Amen. Amen. Jesus was physically raised from the dead. He will raise us from the dead. God made both body and soul. And one day we will have our heavenly bodies to enjoy Him forever because He is redeeming both body and soul. Both. But having said that, what Jesus is saying here is that as important as the physical is, it's still not the ultimate need. You need to have your sins forgiven. You need to have a right relationship with God. That is the ultimate need. So the second surprise is to the seekers of the healing. The point of the surprise is that today people don't think that their biggest problem is their need for a right relationship with God, that their biggest problem is a spiritual problem, that they need to have their sins forgiven. But that's the fact. That's the fact. We all think we know ourselves, our real problems and needs. We all have a list of things that are going to make life work out. Success in business, school, relationships, marriage, children, achieve a certain standard of living, admiration of peers, you name it. Jesus is audacious enough to look at the paralyzed man and say, you may be unhappy, angry, and empty because you can't walk. But if I give you just that, that will not fix your need. You will remain unhappy, angry, and empty because you have not been filled with the only thing that can fix the real problem. Jesus says, I know you. I know your ultimate problem and your real need. He says the very same thing to you and to me. Our real problem is that we're building our identity and resting our hopes on all the wrong things. If Jesus were physically here in this building and you knew that he could give you whatever you wanted, what would you tear open the roof to get? Hey, Jesus, fix this thing and everything will be okay. I'll never be unhappy again. Just give me this one thing and I'll always be content. Jesus wants you to trust that he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your problems. He knows how to handle your ultimate need. He is the Savior you need, nothing and no one else. Now let's look at the third surprise. When you read the text, it is really not something that jumps out at you. That's what makes it a surprise. Maybe it should, but if we don't read carefully, we miss it. Perhaps it's the lack of something that ought to jump out at the reader of the text. It is that seemingly Jesus forgives the paralytic without him asking for forgiveness. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He doesn't repent. There is no place anywhere in the Bible that says forgiveness comes to someone who doesn't repent. 
There's no indication anywhere in the Bible that would support that conclusion. But here's this guy. He's coming through the roof. He and his companions are looking for healing. And Jesus goes over and says, My son, your sins are forgiven. What's up with that? How do we make sense of that? Now, as a storyteller, Mark is drawing us in. And he's actually giving us a clue right in the text. What is that? It's in verse 8. Verse 8 draws you into the next part of the story, but it would also be wise to allow it to help explain what has just happened. Verse 8 says, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they, just question, that they thus questioned in their hearts. See, that's part of Jesus' power. He perceives in his spirit. He knows your heart. He knew the heart of the scribes and the teachers of the law, and he knew the heart of the paralytic, and he knows your heart too. Since I do not believe that Mark or Jesus were contradicting the rest of the entire Bible with this account, here is what it must mean, that Jesus perceived in this man's heart a partial, incomplete, imperfect, unspoken, yet sincere repentance for his sins and longing for grace and mercy. And he responded to it. Even as puny as it might have been, Jesus responded, so eager was he to forgive and to give grace. Look back at verse 5. He saw their faith. He perceived it. Not just the faith of the four friends lowering the man down, but the man as well. This was faith on his part. Jesus saw more in this man's faith than a desire to be healed of his paralysis. He saw what was imperceptible to the crowd, an inarticulate but heartfelt repentance. Jesus responded by pouring out his forgiveness. What does this say for us? We need to trust this man. We need to trust Jesus. Trust the man who looks at you and even before you can get the words to your lips, says, son, your sins are forgiven. As Tim Keller puts it, he is aggressive in his grace. He knows what we need and he comes at us aggressively. The religious leaders in this passage were there to hear Jesus. They wanted to know what he had to say. They were in the right place at the right time. From all appearances, they were in touch with God, but they missed the most important thing, the condition of their hearts. Jesus saw it. The seekers were there too. Jesus sees their heart, their inward condition. He saw the heart of the paralytic and the hearts of the religious leaders. He knows the why behind what you do. He knows your heart. 2 Corinthians 6.30 says about God, You forgive and repay the man according to all his ways, since you know his heart. For you alone know the human heart. Do you hear that? We can see actions that people take, but only God knows your heart behind those actions. There's something that all of us assembled here this morning have in common. We're all here, and that's good. But where is our heart? 
Jesus is concerned about more than saying the right thing, doing the right thing. He is concerned about the heart. There's a wonderful picture of this in C.S. Lewis, The Voyage of the Don Treader, one of the Chronicles of Narnia. There's a boy named Eustace. He's a rotten, unpleasant boy. He finds a cave, and it's filled with dragon treasure, only he doesn't know it's dragon treasure at the time. He, like a dragon, decides to keep it all for himself. Now he can get back at the people that he doesn't like. He finds a big golden bracelet and slips it on his arm. He falls asleep on the treasure, and when he wakes up, he has become a dragon. He has a terrible pain in his arm, which is now a claw, with a bracelet that is cut into his flesh. As he sees himself and he sees how ugly that he has become, he has a terrible sense of loneliness. Then Aslan appears, the Christ figure in Narnia. Aslan takes him to a clear pool and tells him to undress and jump in. Eustace begins to peel off his dragon skin. He finally gets it off, but like a snake, he has another dragon skin underneath. So he does it again and again, but he's still a dragon underneath. So Aslan says, I am going to have to do that for you. Let's take a look at a quote from the book. I was afraid of his claws, but it was pr- I was pretty near desperate now, so I let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. And just as I, th- just as I had thought I had done it myself the other three times, only it hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as peeled switch. And he caught hold of me and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. That's the work of Jesus. He knows our hearts. He hears the inarticulate, imperfect expressions of faith, often mixed up with all sorts of desperate longings. And he responds by pouring out just what we need, the grace of forgiveness and all that entails, sonship, adoption, salvation, and with that, painful but beautiful changes. Jesus wants you to trust him to give you what you need. You might be crying out in pain now. He hears you. He knows your struggles, but you may need the biggest issue dealt with first. He might put that claw right into your heart to peel away ugly things. But it's a gracious claw, an aggressively gracious claw. He loves you. There's a stain, but he can get the stain out. He aggressively wants to forgive you. Lastly, we've looked at what the crowd was surprised about. We've looked at what the seekers of the healing were surprised at. We've looked at what the readers of the text were surprised at. But what about the religious leaders? What was their surprise? We see this in verses 6 and 7. 
Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Because Jesus had just said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now it is important to note that they are absolutely right. They are shocked, and rightly so. They're absolutely right. Only the person wronged can forgive the grievance. There's an old story about Tom, Dick, and Harry, and Tom hits Dick on the nose, and Harry says, Tom, I forgive you. Now, you see, Harry wasn't involved since Tom hit Dick, so Dick says, Excuse me, Harry, but only I can forgive Tom. And he's absolutely right, because how can someone not involved assure someone of forgiveness? This is what the religious leaders were asking, and they were absolutely right to ask. They knew what he was saying. He's claiming to be God. He's saying that all sins are against me, because you can only forgive sins that are against you. All sins are against me. The only person who can say that is the creator and sustainer of the universe, So Jesus, this early in the book of Mark, is claiming, I am God. I am the creator and sustainer of the universe. So I can say, your sins are forgiven. So the religious leaders are shocked and upset. But Jesus doesn't leave it just at that. He perceives in his spirit their thoughts. And he says, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic... Your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Why does Jesus say, which is easier to, why does he ask which is easier to say? I think the key word here is say. The reason is verifiability. I mean, someone can say your sins are forgiven, and who can verify in this lifetime whether that's true? But if you say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, everyone in the crowd will immediately know whether there's any power in that statement. Obviously, however, the one that's easier to say is to have authority to give sins. To forgive sins. But the good news here is that Jesus solves this riddle. He does both. He shows he has authority to do his previous statements, forgive sins, by doing the miracle of healing the paralytic who, and causing him to rise, take up his bed, and go home. But the doing part of forgiving sins is the hard part. It means Christ has to go to the cross as the perfect substitute, as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So in reality, the harder thing to do is the forgiveness of sins because of what what it takes to get that done. But nothing can take away the stain of my sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I have some clothes that I wear to work out in the yard and do other chores like that. Clothes that I used to wear to the office or for going out on a date even. 
but I've turned a nice pair of khakis into a pair of shorts, and I have a shirt that used to be a favorite to wear around town that now Shauna won't let me out of the house, or at least out of the yard with. How come? Because they have stains. Try as they might, as she might, using detergent, stain remover, elbow grease, the stain won't come out. Now, I've added grass stains and paint splotches to the clothes as well. That's why I wear them as work clothes, because despite our best efforts, nothing we do can get the stain out, but there's one who can. From work clothes to a fairy tale, and it actually makes sense to talk about a fairy tale here because J.R.R. Tolkien calls fairy stories the best kind of literature, and The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings are actually forms of fairy tales. Tolkien believes that fairy tales are unfairly directed at children only these days, but he believes they should be read and enjoyed by adults as well because they point to the innate desire and knowledge that there must be and truly is a longing for unmerited grace. It is unmerited grace that is the real point of good fairy stories. God has placed that desire, that longing in our hearts. Let's look at a quote Tolkien provides in his book on fairy stories. He says, Fairy stories generally contain the you catastrophe or good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn. We are surprised by joy. It is not escapist or fugitive. It is a sudden and miraculous grace. And that's what Jesus provides. Let's see this play out in this Scottish fairy tale called The Black Bull of Norway that Tolkien mentions in his book. It's not nearly as popular as Cinderella, but maybe it should be. In fact, it's quite similar to Cinderella. Like many stories, it exi- many fairy stories, it exists in a number of different versions, but every one of them begins once upon a time. Because, you know, one time I heard Senator Robert Nichols say, you know the difference between a fairy tale and a tall Texas tale? A fairy tale begins once upon a time, and a tall Texas tale begins, y'all are never going to believe this. But because this is a fairy tale, it starts once upon a time. There is a girl who comes to a kingdom and is essentially enslaved by an evil woman who forces her to perform all the lowly chores for her and for her three daughters. You know, doing the laundry, scrubbing the floors, shoveling the manure, the fun stuff. The evil woman and her three daughters are all very mean and cruel to the girl. And so this girl doesn't really know what's going on in the public square. Sound familiar? Sounds like Cinderella. But a gallant young prince has gone to battle and while engaged in combat has slain a person that he later regrets killing. He feels guilty about killing this person. And when he comes back, he discovers his royal robes he wore to battle have blood on him. And the blood won't come out. He tries to wash it off in the stream, and the blood won't come out. He tries, he can't get it off. No matter what he does to try, he, uh, he can't get them out himself. He takes them to the royal washerwoman. She can't get it out either. He can't get the, she can't get the stain out. 
So he proclaims that if any girl in the kingdom can get the stain out, she will be his true love and therefore will become his bride and the queen. None of the girls in the kingdom seem to be able to get it out. When the royal robes come to the home of the evil woman, she and her daughters are unable to get the stain out. So in frustration, she lays them on the shelf to be picked up by the royal couriers. Well, you guessed it. Before the royal couriers get there, the girl happens upon the robes and thinking them part of her chores, she washes them and the stain comes right out without a trace. She has no idea of the significance of it. She just does it. She folds them and places them with the clean clothes. Now the evil woman sees them the next morning and realizes what happens and takes and, and tries to pass it off to the prince as if it were her oldest daughter who got the stain out. Well, the prince sees through this effort upon questioning of the oldest daughter. Then, through various twists and turns, the prince discovers this poor girl who actually got the stain out, and they get married and, of course, live happily ever after. Look, anyone who can get the stain out is your true love. No one else can get the stain out. Your self-efforts won't get the stain out. Your therapist won't get the stain out. Your lawyer won't get the stain out. Alcohol, scheming, bribery, being good, working hard in school, being the MVP won't work. There's a stain that try as you might, you can't get it out. But there is one who can. He's spoken of in Malachi 3. He will be like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will purify you. And so Jesus says, I can cleanse it, but I will have to be spent. I will have to give everything. Trust this man. He knows your heart. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your deepest need, forgiveness for your sins, And he provides that through his death and resurrection. He has shown his divine nature through the forgiveness of sin. He can forgive yours. Let's pray.